Well, thanks, Cleves. And just a second ago, I agreed with Cleves to just do his question and answers, but one of the things he said got me thinking, so I'm going to get the first word, uh, about the different kinds of leadership. Because I have spent a lot of time studying political leaders. But I also have this sub-interest in history, in American business history. And I actually wrote a book about 10 years ago on 25 great business leaders in American history. And more recently, I wrote a book called The Money Men. And this is about leaders in American financial history. And so I think I have some basis for comparing the styles of leadership and what qualities work in different realms. So bear that, I'll just say one thing, and that is, I suppose the most, well, Michael Bloomberg has toyed with the idea of running for president this year. And it looks as though he's given up on that. Uh, although there's some talk that maybe he could land the vice presidential nomination. It's probably not going to happen either. But one of the arguments is that Bloomberg is a brilliant success as a businessman. And he has apparently been a pretty successful mayor of New York. Um, but, and, and, not but, but and, there is often this perception that successful businessmen would make good presidents. Because, in fact, when Mitt Romney was still in the race, he constantly said, I'm the only one who's had to meet a payroll, as if this were a qualification for being president. And maybe, maybe not. But having profiled, and I, I think I did try to choose the 25 most important figures in American business. I started with John Jacob Astor in the 18th century, and I ran down to, the book was published in, I think, 1999. I stopped with Bill Gates. And as I look back on that list, I can't think of a single one who would have made a good president. And I'll turn it around. I've studied a whole bunch of presidents. And with the exception of Herbert Hoover, I can't think of a single one who would have made a really good CEO of a large corporation. And Hoover isn't much of an exception because he was a lousy president. And the kind of things that made him good, would have made him good as a CEO, I think, would have made him a poor president. And one of the reasons for this, of course, is that CEOs, if you're in private business, you have a bottom line. There's a very measurable outcome at the end of any quarter, at the end of any given year. Did you make a profit? Did you make a loss? Was the profit larger than the previous quarter? That's what you're finally judged on. But, I mean, to put it, this is an odd way of putting it, but it's certainly true. The U.S. government is a non-profit organization. I mean, if you look at the federal debt, it's a deeply non-profit organization. <laughs> but the point is that there's no single measure of success of how well you did. And the government and the presidency mean all sorts of things to all sorts of different people. And voters are not exactly customers. And voters have all sorts of demands. And every voter, whether that person has, is wealthy or poor, at least in our political system, has an equal claim on the system. And so, as far as I can tell, leadership in the business sector does not translate readily 
to leadership in the political sector. Now, having said that, there aren't very many business leaders who have seriously gone into politics. So I'm not saying that it can't happen. And, and maybe I've skewed the sample by looking at simply the best of business leaders. And it may be, this, maybe it's kind of like when Michael Jordan tried to play baseball. Michael Jordan might well be the best basketball player in American history. And he was a darn good baseball player. But darn good doesn't make the big leagues. You know, only the very, very best succeed at the highest level. And so maybe, maybe there were CEOs who did pretty well or were CEOs of mid-sized corporations who could transfer that skill to the political sector. And maybe they would have made good senators or representatives. But when you're comparing the very top against the very top, it may be that the skills required, the leadership skills required, are so specialized that nobody is good at both realms. You know, Michael Jordan, as I say, greatest basketball player, really good baseball player, but really good doesn't quite make it. Okay, having said that, I'm going to say one more thing, just cutting back to the realm of, of politics particularly. This particular election season is unique in American history. It has never happened before that the two major parties have both nominated a sitting senator. Okay. Now, in fact, the Democrats haven't chosen which sitting senator they're going to nominate, but it's going to be either Senator Obama or Senator Clinton. And so we're going to have a presidential race in which it comes down to two senators. This has never happened. Only two sitting senators have ever been elected president of the United States. And these are Warren Harding and John Kennedy. Now, Warren Harding is no recommendation for whatever the Senate can bring. He's generally ranked in the bottom few of American presidents. John Kennedy, historians and political scientists don't consider Kennedy be, to be a particularly important president. The public still loves him. And in just popularity ratings of former president, he's right up there. So that raises the question, why so few senators? Because, and this is really odd, given that at the beginning of most presidential seasons, there are all sorts of senators among the early candidates. And every, within the heart of every senator resides a prospective president. They all think they can be president. And part of this is simply that politics is like sports, in that success at any level makes you aspire to success at the next level. And, and I suppose this isn't just politics and sports, too. I'm sure it's true just about any kind of undertaking. But it's especially true, I mean, in sports, for example, if you're a good baseball player in grade school, then you're encouraged to play baseball in high school. And if you're a good baseball player in high school, you get recruited by colleges or by the pros. And you just keep going until you've maxed out your ability level. And it's the rare person who has the real talents and who says, you know, but I just don't think I want to do it. It's, there's so much that kind of gets you channeled in this direction of if you've got the ability to do it, you do it. And so everybody, nearly everybody who succeeds to the Senate, who gets that high on the political ladder, thinks, well, okay, what's the next step up? What's the next thing above the Senate seat? Ah, the presidency. So they all think about the presidency, but almost none of them make it. Why not? I'll give you two reasons. One has to do with the political system, and the other one relates more directly to the question of leadership and leadership 
styles because there are different styles of leadership. I've suggested there are different styles, very briefly, I've suggested there are different styles of leadership for business and for politics, but now I'm going to split politics into two realms. The executive branch, more precisely, the presidency, and the legislature. But before I get to that part, the first thing I'm going to say is every time a senator runs for president, the other side knows in advance how it's going to campaign against that candidate. When John Kerry got the nomination in 2004, I knew exactly what Karl Rove was going to use against him. And that was his voting record in the Senate. Because anybody who's been in the Senate for any length of time develops a voting record. And you can be the model of philosophical consistency and still come off looking like a flip-flopper. Because I knew that's what he was going to be branded as. And this simply because of the quirks of the, the legislative process, of the political system. So that, you know, the famous series of votes that was used against Kerry in 2004 was his a vote on the Iraq Appropriations Bill, where he had voted for it, and then he voted against it, and then he voted for it. So where does he stand? He was flip-flopping. Well, in fact, he wasn't flip-flopping. The bill was flip-flopping. This happens all the time. A bill is introduced, and there's an initial vote in committee or something on it, and you, you favor it. And then a right or an amendment is introduced, and now the bill has changed, and it's become unacceptable. Same bill, but it has changed, so you vote against it. You haven't changed your position, but the bill has changed. And then the amendment of the rider gets removed, and then you vote for it. So you've taken the same position all along. And by the way, not everybody in the Senate takes the same position all along, but even if you're the model of consistency, it looks as though you flip-flopped. And given the attention span of politics these days, in a 15-second soundbite, you can't explain that away. So this is what your opponents use against you. This is why, if you want to run for president, and you're in the Leadership Academy, someday you might want to run for president, don't go into the Senate. Become governor. Being a governor is much better as a launching pad for a presidential career. Because in the first place, the issues that you have to decide are typically not ones of such federal importance. So it's harder for your opponents to use your track record against you. And if you really want to be president, move to Texas before you become governor. Because you want to be governor of a state that has a weak governor system because everybody knows it's a weak governor system and anything that goes wrong you can blame on somebody else. If you're in a state that has a system of a strong governor, then it's ha you have a hard time dodging the bullet. Okay, so that's the political background. But here's the deeper part when it comes to this question of leadership. What it comes down to is this. The leadership skills required for success in the Senate, and this applies to the House as well, but the Senate is higher profile. The leadership skills required for success in the Senate are quite different from the leadership skills required for success as president. If you're going to succeed as a senator, you have to know how to go along and to get along. You have to acknowledge that there are 99 other people in this Senate and everyone has an equal right to claim their share of the truth with you. If you are a senator, if you are a successful senator, then you have to be able to compromise your position. You have to be able to cut deals. I'll support you on this particular measure if you'll support me on that particular measure. These are the skills that make for success in the Senate. And no senator ever had more skill in this regard. No senator was ever a more effective leader than Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson was majority leader, majority leader of the Senate in the 
1950s. And Lyndon Johnson was absolutely brilliant as a legislator. Lyndon Johnson subsequently became president. And he discovered that the skills required of a president, the leadership skills, are quite different from the skills required of a Senate majority leader. Johnson was absolutely brilliant in the role of president as legislator-in-chief. In fact, he was too good for his own good and for the nation's good. Johnson managed to persuade, to browbeat, to cajole, to threaten, to intimidate Congress into passing more bills faster than any administration in history. Johnson won a large victory in the 1964 election. He got his team together and he said, okay, we've got about a year and a half. That's how much time the American people are going to give us. We're going to spend down our political capital, so we better get going. And he passed landmark legislation. He passed some very important pieces of legislation. The basis for the Medicare system, element, uh, aid to elementary and secondary education, the initial environmental regulations, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He had already passed before his election. He had already pushed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 through Congress. So Johnson understood how you can get bills passed. And as I say, in his role of president as legislator-in-chief, he has never been exceeded. He, he set as his benchmark Frederick, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's 100 days. When Roosevelt passed, and Roosevelt and Congress passed, 15 major pieces of legislation within the first three months of the Roosevelt administration. And Johnson decided he was going to do better than that. Johnson had always modeled himself on Franklin Roosevelt, and Johnson was going to surpass that, and he did. Now, some of these pieces of legislation were poorly written. Some of them had consequences that no one had any idea of. One of the best examples is the 1965 Immigration Reform Act. It was a, a piece of legislation that seemed to be, at the time, just a minor tweaking of the immigration system. Uh, but it turned out to have enormous ramifications that we've been living with ever since. The other aspect of Johnson's presidency, where he had to be commander-in-chief, I said he was a good legislator-in-chief. As a commander-in-chief, Johnson was a disaster. And the disaster came from precisely the same skills that made him a success as legislator-in-chief. When you're legislator-in-chief, you look for the middle ground. You look for what can bring people together. But when you fight a war, if that's the attitude you take, it's almost certainly a recipe for disaster. Because you're either going to fight a war or you're not going to fight a war. But Johnson wanted to have it both ways. Johnson often said that he didn't want to escalate the war in Vietnam to the level where it distracted Congress from his domestic reform package, which to him was far more important than what was going on in Vietnam or elsewhere around the world. Most presidents, I said this morning, most presidents get elected on the basis of domestic politics. And for most presidents, domestic politics is more important than for foreign affairs. This isn't always the case. Occasionally you get someone who is the reverse. But with Johnson, the domestic arena was far more important than the foreign policy arena. And so he subordinated the interests of foreign policy to domestic policy. And he tried to fight Vietnam along the middle ground. There were those who said the United States ought to get out. This is a loser, and we simply can't win, so let's pull our troops out. 
There were others who said, Mr. President, you need to ask Congress to declare war. You need to mobilize, you need to declare a national emergency and wage this as though we're really intent to win. And Johnson refused to do it, just as he did in the Senate, just as he did in le as legislator-in-chief. He tried to find a common ground, he tried to split the difference. And by splitting the difference, he wound up splitting the country and in the end losing the war in Vietnam. So the moral of the story is that if you're going to succeed in leadership in any realm, you probably ought to figure out which realm you want to specialize in. If you want to be a success in business, okay, focus on that and cultivate those talents and those skills. Or another way of putting it is recognize in yourself what talents you have and what kind of personality you have. Um, I talked about leadership skills. Well, the, the skills often reflect the personality. Um, and great presidents, I think, have what you can call an executive personality. They tend not to have a legislative personality. The legislative personality is the one where you acknowledge that other people have their portion of the truth and they have as much right to, to write up this bill and get this whatever, whatever measure it might be passed. The executive personality says, no, I'm making the decision. The buck, the buck stops here. In the Senate, in uh, the House of Representatives, the buck doesn't stop anywhere. The buck just keeps going around because everybody has to sign on to it. And if you're a success in that realm, that's fine. I mean, if you've got those skills. I wrote a book about Benjamin Franklin a while back. And sometimes people who kind of forget their chronology of history will ask me, how come Benjamin Franklin was never elected president? And my short answer is, well, he died. Uh, and in fact, he died before, well, he, he was still alive, barely, during the presidential election of 1789. So conceivably, he could have run against George Washington, but nobody was running against George Washington. But that's not the real reason he wasn't. He never became president of the United States because he simply didn't have the personality to be president of the United States. He was a brilliant leader of a sort. He was a brilliant leader of the persuasive kind, but not the, what should we call, get out and front and lead from that position kind. He wasn't a George Washington. He was a great committee man. He could take 50 people on a committee or in a parliament and figure out what they needed, what they wanted, and write up this in the form of a bill or a resolution in a manner that everybody could sign on to and then get it forward. He had a brilliant way of getting people to agree with him, of signing on for the measures, the initiatives he thought ought to be undertaken, even without, especially without, taking credit for himself. Um, he managed to allow people to think that his bright ideas were actually their bright ideas. And it was a kind of behind-the-scenes leadership that was exceedingly effective, but it didn't carry over into the elective political realm. Well, he actually was what was called President of Pennsylvania. Uh, before the, in the time when the, the separate states, their chiefs of state were all called presidents rather than governors. But it was an honorary position. He didn't have to run for it or anything like that. So anyway, I guess what you need to do is figure out where your talents lie, what your temperament is like, and then find the field where you can succeed. And if you're Michael Jordan, decide whether you want to play basketball or play baseball. Anyway, I'll stop there. Now I will take questions if anybody has questions. Yeah, please. Is there a quality of leadership that is important no matter what sector you're in, uh, that you need that particular quality? Yeah, there definitely is. 
And this is where history comes in. It's not just history, but this kind of a sensitivity to others. What you need is the ability to put yourself in other people's shoes and in other people's minds and see how the world looks from their perspective. You don't have to accept their perspective, but you do have to try to figure out what they're looking for. Because leaders, by definition, have to deal with other people. You can be brilliant in any particular area of endeavor, but if it's just you, well, then you're not leading anything. So leaders have to know how to get along with other people. They don't necessarily have to make people like them. In the history of the American presidency, there are some presidents who take the model of they want everybody to like them, and they succeed. Some of them succeed that way. There are other presidents, I would argue, if we wanted to get into an argument of this, I would argue that it's more common for successful presidents to make enemies as much as they make friends. Because the only way you make changes in any system is to figure out how to whack the system over the head and knock it sideways. You know, if you want everybody to like you, if you want everybody to get along together, what you're saying is the status quo is fine because the status quo has a lot of inertia and it really resists change. And the only way you can really change the status quo is to figure out who's with you and who's against you. And if you look at presidents from Thomas Jefferson, who really, you know, in his inaugural address, he said, we are all Federalists, we are all Republicans, but he was lying through his teeth. He knew perfectly well that he was still going to target the Federalists, these bad guys who were trying to undermine American democracy. Andrew Jackson was famous for the enemies he made. He's the only president ever to have killed a man in cold blood in a duel. Now, he didn't conduct any duels when he was in the White House, but he did the next best thing. He found his enemies. He waged what amounted to a political duel against Nicholas Biddle, and he won. Abraham Lincoln. Talk about driving people apart. Well, you know, it was his election that split the Union. Theodore Roosevelt knew how to make enemies. He targeted J.P. Morgan and what Roosevelt called the criminal rich. Franklin Roosevelt did the same thing. He castigated the money changers of Wall Street. And he was constantly berating the, the wealthy who put their own self-interest above the interests of the nation. And for his pains, Roosevelt was called a traitor to his class. And he relished, he reveled in that description. In fact, I stole the description, the, 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 the phrase, as a title for my book about Franklin Roosevelt. So, if you're going to make changes, you have to know how to not just bring people together, but split them apart. Other questions? Brian, did you have a question? Um, yeah, but it's going into backtracking a little bit. Okay. It's related. All right, well, Mike, Mike or either way. Two of the people that Hank and I interviewed for our Vanderbilt project mentioned what a pity it is that we don't allow our, our leaders to change their mind hmm. using... Vandenberg is a prime example of someone who did change his mind. Uh, contemporary politicians, if they change their mind, they're, they're looked upon as a flip-flop or whatever. Can you talk about the value of being able to change your mind as a good value in leadership? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely necessary to be able to change your mind because nobody's perfect, nobody gets it right all the time, and very often situations call for action even before you're absolutely sure what the appropriate action is and here I'll draw on the example of Franklin Roosevelt Franklin Roosevelt became president in March 1933 
when the nation's economy, particularly its financial system, was in absolute crisis. And Roosevelt declared what he called a banking holiday. This is a federal edict that all banks are going to be closed for five days. This was to stanch a run on the banks. And in his inaugural address and in his early messages to Congress and the American people, he said, quite frankly, we're going to try this solution. We'll hope it works. We'll do our best to see that it works. If it doesn't work, though, we're not going to be too proud to admit that it's not working and try something else. That's very rare in a president because presidents sit at this pinnacle of power, but it's a very vulnerable pinnacle. When you're at the top, you might be very powerful by virtue of being at the top, but you're also very exposed. And if you allow, if you acknowledge weakness in any aspect of what you do, then you simply invite other people to take pot shots at you. Roosevelt was able to get away with this in part because of the nature of his personality. He had, and, and personality is absolutely crucial to leadership, he had a very secure sense of himself. And I'm, I'm a little bit surprised, even now, when I look at political figures, political leaders, who almost all the ones who get to the highest level are very talented people. But many of them are also very insecure. They can be very thin-skinned. And they just don't like criticism. And so this is one reason why presidents, for example, are often reluctant to acknowledge mistakes. Because it damages their own self-image. But also because we ask so much of presidents, we want them to be perfect. And for them to acknowledge that they're not perfect somehow diminishes them in our view. Roosevelt was able to get away with in part because he had this very secure image of himself. And he could say, okay, didn't work, so we'll try something else. And, and he didn't then have to say, boy, maybe I'm not qualified to be president as a result of this. But the other thing was, the nation was clearly in crisis. And the American people were willing to go along with whatever a president tried. And if it didn't work, okay, they'd let him try again. It's not often that the country is in crisis. It's a good thing, but it's one of the quirks of American political history that great presidents come along not during times of peace and prosperity, but during moments of crisis. And this is not to say that the people who preside during peace and prosperity aren't potentially great presidents, but the fact is, if the nation is prosperous and the world is at peace, you don't need a great president. All you need is somebody to just keep a steady hand at the till and just keep her going in the same direction. The great presidents are the ones who change course. And they have to know when to change course, what direction to change course to, and how to accomplish the turn. So if you decide you want to be president and you want to be a really great president, wait until the country is in crisis. Then come along, and then, then you have a chance to be considered great. Theodore Roosevelt always knew that he would never be considered a great president because the country was peaceful and prosperous while he was in the White House. He is considered by historians of political science a good president, a near great president, but not a great president. And he was a victim in this regard of his own success. Brian, what was your question going to be? I was going to be talking about generals in the White House, but I actually have a little different question now. Okay. Uh, the debate in the Democratic nominating process right now has been change versus experience, which is very simplistic, obviously. But what changes are important, and especially in a, an election where you know, all the candidates are coming from the Senate, as you said? Yeah. Is, are Hillary's experiences important compared to Brock's? And 
if she does win based on experience and then goes against McCain, who has much more experience in the Senate, obviously, how does that shake out? One of the curiosities, one of the abiding curiosities of American politics is we never know how it shakes out until it shakes out. People audition for the presidency. They run for the presidency, they debate, they do all this stuff, they say, look at my experience, look at my judgment, look at my charisma, look at this, look at that. We never know what kind of presidents they're going to make until they become president, simply because there's no other job quite like it. Being a senator doesn't demonstrate your skills to be president. Being a governor doesn't demonstrate your skills to be president. Being a corporate executive doesn't. Being, you name it, nothing prepares you for being president. So when we elect presidents, we are really buying a pig in a poke. We don't know what we're going to get. However, every four years we got to try. We do the best we can. We operate on insufficient information. Okay, so how does experience count? Well, as I say, nobody has the experience of being president until you're president. Nobody has to make the decisions. However, if you have studied the issues for a long time, if you have been involved in on the Military Affairs Committee, if you have been on the Foreign Relations Committee, if you've been on appropriations, if you've been on Ways and Means, then presumably you know the issues. And that's better than not knowing the issues. Now, I, I happen to think that the war in Iraq was a bad idea. I don't know how it'll turn out. I might, history might prove me wrong. But one of the reasons I think that it was a bad idea was, and I, and one of the reasons I think that the decision was made, despite the fact that I think it was a bad idea, was that this particular president had very little knowledge of foreign affairs before he became president. And I was living in Austin during, well, since 1981, but I was there in 1999 and 2000 when then Governor Bush was receiving his cram course on foreign affairs from Condoleezza Rice, who would fly in every few weeks and brief him on foreign affairs. And I'm sure it was a top-level briefing. But it's not the same kind of understanding you get if you've been thinking about this subject for 20 or 30 years. So in that regard, Senate experience, especially regarding foreign affairs, can be very valuable. I say especially regarding foreign affairs because if you're a governor, you don't get foreign affairs experience. If you're a governor, you do get experience regarding things like taxes and expenditures on certain kinds of things. It's even the biggest state, California, New York, Texas, Florida, these are nowhere near the size of the United States, but at least you understand about writing up a budget. You understand about how a tax code might work. But nothing as a governor prepares you for foreign policy. When I said that Lyndon Johnson was successful as a legislator-in-chief but not as a commander-in-chief, Senate experience can be very valuable in that regard. If you understand how the Senate works, if you understand how the House works, you have a better chance of getting your measures passed. Another kind of experience that really does help a lot is experience in the public eye and experience with the modern media. The most successful presidents have understood how to use whatever medium was predominant in their day to their advantage. Theodore Roosevelt was brilliant in his use of mass circulation newspapers, which had just become available within that decade. Franklin Roosevelt was a virtuoso at the radio, which again, he was the first president able to, and, and, and who did, use the radio. Ronald Reagan was brilliant with television. 
I don't know who the president of the internet age is going to be. I don't even know what talents are required to use the internet successfully. But somebody's going to come along and is going to know how to use it and how to reach people more effectively than anybody has used it before. So experience does matter. But the biggest virtue that you can bring to the table as president, and here I would suggest this applies across all areas of leadership, and it's the absolute hardest one to test until you do it, and that is judgment. Can you judge people? Can you judge things like talent, loyalty? Can you tell when two sets of people are arguing that you should do two opposite things? Who's right? Who's wrong? It's, it's one of these things that comes down to a case-by-case -case sort of thing, but I suppose that there are certain traits. Do you, when you're hiring somebody, can you look into that person's soul? Can you figure out what those, that person's motivations are? And can you tell if this is going to be a good person to have working for you? Now, in this regard, maybe a good training ground, I don't know, but maybe a good training ground is a field that has given us almost no presidents. It's a field that gives us, that doesn't extrapolate to other fields. Almost no other leaders come from this field. And that is the judiciary. Because, you know, if you think about it for a minute, being a judge requires this sort of, well, judgment. And, you know, the, it's, help me out here, Glees. Have we ever had a president who was, what's the highest level judge we've ever had as president? We haven't had a Supreme Court justice who became president, have we? Charles Evans Hughes had been a justice and he ran for president, was nearly elected, but he lost in 16. It could be argued that Taft, of course, has a judicial temperament, but of course that's afterwards. Well, that's right. Yeah. In fact, Taft is a good example here of a judicial temperament. And of course, in, in Taft's case, he always, that's what he aspired to be. He didn't want to be president. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Well, uh, and so he finally got what he wanted after being, it's not, I won't call him a failure exactly as a president. Oh, here's something else just to keep in mind. This is kind of a side, but how we evaluate presidents. People like Gleaves and myself, we, and those people are in this you know, presidential studies kind of gig, one of the things that we do, for better or worse, and sometimes I think it's a little bit for worse, is we elevate two-term presidents above one-term presidents. It's just kind of a reactive thing. If you're a two-term president, you're more important than a one-term president. Um, well, because almost always they're, I guess, Coolidge and, well, Coolidge is sort of one and a half terms. Polk, is there anybody else? who could have run a second time and said, no, I don't want to. Uh, well, Truman's sort of almost two terms anyway, and he couldn't have got the nomination. Um, so anyway, it's very rare, but uh, it's interesting that judges don't become president. Grover Cleveland, now he was, a, was he a justice of peace? Uh, maybe, but of course he had been he had been okay he had been mayor of Buffalo yeah. and then governor of New York. Yeah. Um, but I don't think there have any, ever been any federal judges, have there? No. Okay, and maybe it's simply because maybe it's it maybe it's the same reason that college professors don't become president. Here I flatter myself ourselves, uh, and and what I mean is here, and of course the one exception to this is Woodrow Wilson. But uh, the reason we all don't is once you get tenure, 
it's very difficult to give up this lifetime no-cut contract. And if you're a federal judge, it's the same thing. You know, you, you got your job for life and they can't reduce your salary. And to give that up for the chance you might be president, boy, you'd really have to itch for the White House to, to do that. And I'm, I think maybe it's a shame. Maybe we would get better judgment in the White House, or for that matter, in the Senate and the House, if we actually had more judges. I don't know. Other questions? Yes? Um, in speaking of judgment, I'm just wondering your thoughts about the dissonance between personal and public lives, and I think we've just seen that in New York with the governor there, but when we look at candidates, is it fair for us to assess their personal lives as things have gone on and weigh that into how we view them as a potential leader? It's not only fair these days, it's imperative, because the media decreasingly recognizes the difference between private behavior and public behavior. Um, it's, it's worthwhile up to a point on matters of, let's just say, fundamental integrity. If somebody tells me something, is that person telling me the truth? I think that's, that's a value system that does carry over from the private life to the public life. And you want to know if your president says something that he or she is not lying. And if this person has a history of lying to his or her friends, that's not a good recommendation. Now having said that, I think there are occasions when a president might be called upon to lie. I mean, suppose during the Second World War, a reporter had the temerity and the poor judgment to ask, Mr. President, is the D-Day invasion going to begin tomorrow? Okay, well, if a president said even no comment, that gives something away. So a president might well decide that he can save lots of lives by saying, oh no, it's not going to happen for another six months, even if he knows perfectly well that it is going to happen the next day. So one can justify that division between a private code of ethics and a public code of ethics. Now, in fact, though, I think this division on certain quality traits uh, can be distinct and probably is important. In fact, in one of the talks that I gave yesterday or the day before, I talked about how certain qualities that can be very admirable in individuals are not admirable at all. In fact, they're counterproductive in presidents. And these include such things as personal loyalty. And I cited examples of presidents who kept people in their cabinets out of reasons of personal loyalty far past the time when these individuals had become burdens on the administration and on the country. And so, I mean, we, we could have an interesting discussion of this, but I happen to think that Harry Truman hung on Dean Acheson too long. Because Dean Acheson, who was a very important Secretary of State, became an enormous political liability to Truman. After Acheson demonstrated that, well, first of all, he looked down on most members of Congress, which is not particularly a good thing when the, your Secretary of State has to go and testify before Congress. And Dean Acheson refused to distance himself from Alger Hiss after Alger Hiss was revealed, or at least alleged at that point, and subsequently it became clear this was true, that he was a Soviet spy. Okay, so people who didn't like Truman's policy could focus on Acheson, and the policy then was burdened with all of the animosity toward Acheson, and the policy wasn't judged on its own merits alone. Now, Truman, for a variety of reasons, some of them being personal loyalty, stuck with Acheson. He's my guy, you know, and I'm going to stick by my friends. 
Okay, that's a fine trait in an individual and you ought to stick by your friends through adversity. But if you're president of the United States, there are other issues that can come into play. And, and here I give, and I did give, the, I think an example where it becomes clearest is on something like this, where if you personally want to be a pacifist, if you adopt a philosophy of nonviolence, regardless of what my enemies do to me, I will turn the other cheek. I will not answer violence with violence. That's fine. And I can consider that quite admirable, okay? But if that's your attitude, if that's your private code of ethics, you have no business at all running for President of the United States. Because the President of the United States must not be a pacifist. The President of the United States is responsible for the lives and welfare of 300 million people. And if an enemy attacks the United States, you cannot simply turn the cheek of the United States because that will allow lots of people to die. So there are certain areas in which a private code of ethics should match up with a public code of ethics. There are others where allowances need to be made for the different realms. Other questions? Yes? One last question. Okay. With the possibility of our first female president, can you make any comments about the difference between female and male? It's hard to say in the context of American society, because it hasn't happened yet. For a long time, women's advocates would contend, not all of them, but a lot of them would contend, if we just made women leaders, then the world would experience peace for the first time. Because it's all these guys who just insist on causing wars. So when women run the world, the world will know peace. Most other major countries, most, a lot of other major countries have had women leaders and they have not been notably less violent in their policies than male leaders. Um, and in some cases, if you wanted to, I suppose, you could call this overcompensation where in Golda Meir was as tough as any other Israeli prime minister in defending the interests of Israel. Indira Gandhi was as hard-nosed as could be in dealing with Pakistan and India's other potential enemies. In fact, I mean, I'll repeat this. It, it might sound mildly sexist, but you can decide whether it does. <laughs> except, except it's hard to say which sex it's sexist against. But when Indira Gandhi was in the cabinet, she wasn't yet prime minister, but it was the time of one of the recurrent wars between India and Pakistan. And she was, she took the hardest line of anybody. And so people got to describing Indira Gandhi as the only man on a cabinet of old women. So, but anyway, it's hard to say in an American context whether a woman would make any difference as a woman. I was talking to Gleaves earlier and I have this rather paradoxical theory about what to do, how to vote, if you want to end the war in Iraq. I don't know if you want to end the war in Iraq. You don't have to want to end the war in Iraq. But if you do want to end the war in Iraq, you might consider voting for John McCain. This might sound odd. McCain is the one who's been staunchest behind the, the war policy. But suppose Hillary Clinton became president. Hillary Clinton has taken a position of 
Well, sort of opposition to the war. It's hard to know exactly where. She did vote to authorize the use of force in Iraq. But she since said that you know, if she knew what she knew, she'd change the vote and all that. Anyway, but if Hillary Clinton gets elected president, she will endure particular scrutiny. Is she tough enough to handle American foreign policy? Is the fact that she's a woman going to make her wimp out in the Middle East? She'll know she's under that kind of scrutiny, and so she will be very careful, and I would argue very slow, to pull troops out of Iraq. Now, here I'm going to get into the realm of prediction, and my predictions aren't any better than yours, but I'll just give it to you for what it's worth. I happen to think that trouble lies ahead in Iraq. Uh, the country was essentially artificially created and it's held together only by outside force or the force of dictatorial authority from within. And you know, once you start removing that force, I think Iraq may well splinter. It's already lost the northern part to the Kurds in a de facto sense. And there is a lot of turmoil to be experienced between the Shias and the, the Sunnis in the southern part of the country. So, I think there's a lot of trouble ahead for Iraq, regardless of whether the United States is there or not. Now, if, if that premise is correct, and if we agree that American troops can't stay there forever, and actually they can't, because we just don't have enough troops to leave a substantial portion there forever, and to deal with other challenges to American security and challenges that are going to pop up. The world has been remarkably quiet these last five years and a lot of bad things could have happened but didn't anyway. So American troops are going to have to start coming out and if they come out under a Hillary Clinton administration and if then bad things happen in Iraq, you know that the Republicans are going to hammer her for having lost Iraq. Now, this is going to happen to a President Obama as well, because they're both Democrats. But in Clinton's case, it's going to be doubly a matter of, boy, she was too weak. And, you know, all you have to say is, she was too weak. You know, you'd say it artfully. You wouldn't say President Clinton was too weak. No, you say, she was too weak. And your audience knows that a woman can't stand up to this sort of thing. Okay? Well, and that's why. I suspect that if you want to get troops out of Iraq, don't vote for Clinton, don't vote for Obama, vote for McCain, because McCain can operate from a position of strength. Nobody challenges John McCain on national security. My God, he's a war hero. He spent five years in a prisoner of war camp. McCain can declare victory and say, now it's time for the troops to come home. We did what we could. We gave the Iraqi people six years, and now they got to stand on their own. They can't rely on us forever. We won the war. Okay? If they lose the peace, they lose the peace, but we can't keep everybody forever. So, anyway, that's the kind of challenge a woman president would encounter. Are there any areas where a woman president would have an advantage? Hard to say. One might think that, okay, a woman president, a president who is a mother, might be thought to be particularly sensitive to sort of, uh, oh, I don't know, let's say uh, health care reform. Okay? Maybe. Maybe not. It's, it's hard to know how that would play out. Times and attitudes are changing fast. I can go back to the administration of Franklin Roosevelt. Francis Perkins 
was Roosevelt's Secretary of Labor. Francis, this is Francis with an E, a woman, who was Roosevelt's Secretary of Labor. And organized labor had a hard time getting used to this because the Secretary of Labor was always supposed to be a union person. And union people were all men. Okay, Roosevelt was able to get them to go along with this. But when it came time to write this, uh, the legislation that created the social security system, Roosevelt made sure that Francis Perkins took the lead. And this was at a time when a woman was really conventionally, by most people, thought to be more sensitive to the needs of the elderly, to the needs of people who had suffered injury on the job, to these social kinds of questions. And he did this quite deliberately. Francis Perkins is going to be the one, and she was always Mrs. Perkins, is going to be the one who is going to take the lead on this. I don't think that distinction is as important as it used to be. Uh, maybe with some people. My, my father is almost 93, my mother is 82, and both of them have told me at times in the past that they would never vote for a woman for president. And they both said in perfect sincerity that they just don't think it right or possible for a woman to run the country. And, you know, they're entitled to their opinions. I don't, I haven't talked to my mom, well, it's actually a moot question, because they're also vo both convinced Republicans. And I'm sure there's a connection between those two, but, you know, and so my mom nowadays can say she won't vote for Hillary Clinton because she'd never vote for a Democrat. Uh, would she vote for, I don't know, Kay Bailey Hutchison? if the senator from Texas, if she got the nomination. I don't know. I don't know how much my mom's views have changed. They changed somewhat, um, but I don't know if they changed that far, which raises oh, it's kind of a deeper question. We can end on this one. It's a philosophical question, but it's a historical question. When change occurs in society, when change occurs in people's ways of thinking, does it change because individuals change their minds or does it change because the older generation just steps off the stage, retires and dies, and a new generation comes along with new ideas? It's a question that those of us who deal with history and change over time have to encounter all the time. But it also gets at a kind of deeper question of how do people work? Do people ever really change their minds on fundamental issues? When we view society as a whole, it's kind of hard to tell sometimes because generations change and move along. And so the younger generation is more open, I think, to ideas like women's equality than an older generation. Well, is it because the older generation hasn't had time to change its mind? Or maybe it's never going to change its mind. I don't know. But this will be for you all to figure out. Thanks very much. Thank you very much.